Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. From KUOW, you're listening to Soundside. I'm Mike Davis. It was 2001. The Seattle Mariners were doing things in Major League Baseball that hadn't been done in almost a century. 116 wins, 46 losses. And for me, it was the height of Seattle sports. And the team's eventual loss to the Yankees in the playoffs was soul-crushing. Not long before the time when Ichiro and the crew were making history on the baseball field, Seattle's political turmoil was blowing up on the national stage. Protests over the city's 1999 World Trade Organization Conference came to be known as the Battle of Seattle. Now, for many, the spheres of sports and politics are totally separate arenas. One is fun and low-stakes pastime, Another, a struggle for real-world power. But in his new book, Heartbreak City, Seattle Sports and the Unmet Promise of Urban Progress, author Sean Scott makes the case that sports and politics have more in common than what meets the eye. Going all the way back to the city's early roots, Heartbreak City traces the stories of athletes and activists who made Seattle an athletic and political powerhouse. Welcome to Soundside, Sean. It's great to be with you. In this book, we see the relationship between sports and politics. How did you decide to put these two ideas together? Well, the the writing process uh, for anybody who has tried to write anything for any length of time is a tremendously isolating experience. And this is a project that was essentially about civic connection in the middle of a quarantine, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a period where uh, the ties that we had to one another and the ties that we had to the broader idea of a civic good seemed to have dissipated uh, to a greater extent than they had at any other point in my lifetime. We're talking 2020, 2021, 2022, when the book was uh, researched and written. Uh, politics is, I say in the book, civic cortisol in a lot of ways. It's the stress hormone that people get um, when they're stuck in traffic or uh, when they're talking to a bad boss. Sports, on the other hand, are civic dopamine in a lot of ways. That's the pleasure hormone that gets released when you're imbibing certain substances or you're taking in a beautiful sunset. The sort of tension between these two chemicals in our civic life, if you will, was something that I found really, really fascinating and wanted to explore because I knew that they were related to one another. People watch and enjoy sports not to forget about our politics, but in a lot of ways to feel better about them. Um, And there's a a relationship between those two that I spend, you know, a good 230 uh, pages trying to tease through and trying to paint a muralesque uh, portrait of uh, Seattle history that goes all the way back to settlement and brings us right up to the present day. So we're familiar with sports fandom. Everyone knows what that is. And I think people are familiar with civic pride. 
I like the way that these things were married. So when we're when we're going back to the 1800s and we're looking at, you know, the lumberjacks and, and, and the frontier nature of, I guess I would have to say of the white folks that came here because there were people here. But, you know, that was tied to our sports identity. Were we going to be this tough, rugged frontier place? Should our sports teams represent that when we're talking about bringing in transit, uh, you know, but we got to go win these baseball games? Like, what is the, the relationship of civic pride and sports fandom? And do you think it still exists today? Yeah, well, it's it's at the root of Seattle's identity. The fact that we are a city that is as far west as we are actually puts us squarely in the center of stories that I think all Americans of every era have told themselves about hard work, about perseverance, about um, sort of that that frontier uh, mentality that with enough grit and perseverance, you can achieve whatever it is that you want. Uh, structural obstacles be damned. And so uh, when you go back and look at sort of the first attachment that Seattle had to a baseball team, it occurs in the early 1870s at the exact same time that the city is competing with the Tacomas and the Olympias and the Snohomishes of the world for a railroad terminus. A traveling baseball team, uh, initially known as the Alkais, later known as the Reds, galvanizes great support because they're going to Port Gamble, to Victoria, uh, to Snohomish, and they're crushing teams. And people are really excited about it. And people see, in the middle of trying to uh, attract the railroad, uh, which was a, a sort of stop-and-go attempt that took a good 20, 25 years in the city of Seattle, uh, baseball glory could happen immediately. We never know when, when the railroad terminus was going to get built so that you could spread your arms and you know proclaim triumph over area rivals. But the baseball game is tonight. We're playing Port Gamble tonight. We're going to beat them 51 nothing tonight, as it happened with one of those games, so that there's kind of an instant gratification that people uh, still search for in our sports as a way of achieving, I think, what we have a more difficult time achieving uh, politically and socioeconomically. I gotta, I gotta ask you a personal question. I, I gotta ask you because this is called Heartbreak City, and when I first seen this, it, it reminded me uh, of my heartbreak, and that was the the two thousand one Mariners. Baseball was my first love. Two thousand one broke me. I haven't been a Mariners fan since, <laughs> literally. Uh, but I'm curious for you. Did you have a moment in Seattle sports where you had a significant heartbreak based on one of our teams? Man, it's it's such a good question. I mean, I think I tried to write a book, take it a step back for a second. I tried to write a book that proceeded as as much of as a novel as it was a history book. And with the novel, you have overlapping storylines and you have compelling characters with strong motivations. You have a strong sense of setting, which obviously in this case is the city of Seattle, um, but urban America more broadly. And you have to have a love interest, too. Things have to implode. There are several stadium implosions. People have to die or get killed. There have to be you know, things that really have production value with it. But you have to have a central motivating love story. And I think the love story in this case is the relationship that we have to our teams that kick us in the teeth. <laughs> Pretty, Unless you're a Seattle Storm fan um, and you know, knowing that they're the most accomplished franchise in, in, in really our, our city's history – but I think of the initial heartbreak for me was the Sonics losing in 1994. I can still see Dikembe Mutombo lying on the, you know, the green, holding the basketball over his head. And certainly the, the Mariners, you know, losing in 2001 to the Yankees sort of reintroduced sort of this feeling that there's something about sort of the city and its teams that felt, I want to say, cursed in some ways to sort of fall just short of its potential in like the most excruciating ways. Yes. And I think that there's something about that that is is metaphoric for how our politics proceed to where it feels like 
um, as a city, we're kind of unable to to get out of our own way. And sometimes for all the great progressive achievements that we have, there's a sense that um, we're falling just a little bit short of where we want to go. So certainly, you know, there are almost there are too many heartbreaks to count really in the sports side of it. And on the politics side of it, um, you know, you're definitely talking about uh, repeated attempts to get mass transit in the city that um, sort of uh, start and stop and fail in various ways and an ultimate success attempts at uh, integrating the city with the Seattle schools, um, you know, being segregated through the 1970s. And at the same time that you have people celebrating the Sonics going on these title runs, the city is also trying to reckon with what it means to have schools as segregated as they are at the same time in the late 1970s. So uh, these these two things relate to one another, but I definitely think the heartbreak refers as much to our politics as they do to the sports, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it feels like we're a really resilient city in all of those ways. It's like we keep fighting, we keep pushing on the politics side. Um, I keep going back to my ex. I, I will peep in on the Mariners <laughs> just to see how they're doing, but no, no, I get that. But you open this book in a very interesting time. I mean, we, we open up in 1872. Uh, we're getting the history, but can you tell us what kind of sports were even around in the 1870s and what did we look like politically? Yeah, almost every sport I want to say that you can think of was played at that time. I mean, it starts with the fact that the indigenous, uh, the Coast Salish people, when the moment of settlement occurs 20 years earlier, I mean, in the early 1850s, they're in the middle of their season of merriment that includes sort of early track and field events that include uh, a game called Shinny that is an early ancestor of lacrosse. And so it's not only the games that the settlers that were playing, but it's also the, the Coast Salish folks who were here racing canoes and building, in a lot of ways, the infrastructure for uh, the later triumph of the UW rowing team that I know people are very excited about, as they should be. But it's important to sort of center that settler sports history in indigenous wisdom. Settlers, when they got here, did everything. They boxed in defiance of Washington uh, territory law. They held racing contests. They held walking contests between power walkers, I guess you would call them retroactively in Seattle, versus those who were coming in from Portland. They roller skated. Seattle appears to have been a very boring town in the 1870s. There were reports of um, overwhelming social awkwardness that made it so that when uh, a roller rink was actually built, a lot of the newspapers at the time were really excited because it was going to give uh, people a chance to mingle and sort of you know, exercise their, um, their poor social skills in Seattle. And if that sounds familiar, stop me. And this was one of the things that was most exciting about this book was trying to draw these parallels between the present and the past and realizing that there are some core things about our city that have really remained consistent over time. Um, and and our love affair with sports being one of them and the fact that sports sort of bring people together in a way that maybe they otherwise wouldn't is is another aspect of it as well. Can you talk about the athletes that represented the city, but also what Seattle itself was known for? I feel like I mean, I know that now sometimes when we think like, you know, you're traveling, you think of different cities in my mind. What sports teams do they have? They got one, they got two. That You got three sports teams. Mm-hmm. You're a major city. How were we viewed as a city in the early 1900s and what type of athletes did we have here? I think Seattle was for many years in its early history, certainly in the early 20th century, kind of known as a bit of a quaint, somewhat provincial town that was sort of on the periphery of of urban America. I mean, your big cities, the New Yorks, the Chicago's, the Boston's, um, LA a little bit later, um, were sort of the cities that were seen as really the the ones that um, were the preeminent American cities. And so Seattle was really trying to use uh, sports 
the construction of play fields and playgrounds across the city, urban infrastructure as a way to bring itself a little bit closer to sort of the, the first image that people think of when they think of a great American city. Our first real sports triumph that put the city on the map didn't come necessarily from a single athlete, but from a coach. It was Gil Doby at the University of Washington football program um, who led the football team uh, from 1908 to 1915 to an undefeated record in eight seasons, 58-0-3, crushing Washington State, crushing Oregon, crushing Oregon State, um, to the point where a lot of those teams were actually reluctant to want to have to compete with Washington anymore. Um, so as we're getting ready to, to look at what's going to happen, um, hopefully on New Year's Day with another dominant victory against another Western school, uh, we want to call back to that history where um, the Huskies were on top and the New York Times had to concede that the best football program in the country was based in Seattle um, at that point in time. So it's 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 really one of the things that's remained consistent in our city's history, I think, is using um, sports and athletics as a way to uh, put ourselves on par with some of our rival cities and rival cities in the region, for sure. Throughout the 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 book, it feels like sports is kind of positioned as this rubber stamp of approval for Seattle as we, we've come up through the decades. And, you know, even though we had the NBA champions, Supersonics, um, you know, sometimes people felt like basketball was still too small of a sport and they wanted baseball, they wanted football. Why do you think Seattle has this this sports edge? I mean, even now, you know, we, we, we Sounders came, the Kraken came, the Storm have come up. Why is sports this itch that we have to keep trying to scratch? It has to do with, I think, our geographic location. It has to do with the fact that at the very foundation of our city, we were an insecure city in a lot of ways because, you know, when the first white settlers came to Seattle, the first name that they gave to the city that became Seattle was New York Alki, which means New York eventually. In other words, there was an understanding, hey, we're not there yet, but we're going to try to get there eventually. And I think our, our sports kind of wear some of that civic ambition on their sleeves. At the same time, Seattleites can be very, very selective about what kinds of sports they lend or are willing to sort of concede their civic identity to. You were referring um, to sort of that the episode in the middle 1960s where, sure, the Sonics came to town or it was announced that an NBA franchise was going to come to town. And there was a feeling among the city sports establishment at that time that the NBA was frankly too black and it did not actually qualify the city as a big league city to have an NBA team. What a lot of city boosters and many area fans really wanted was football and baseball, which they eventually got through the uh, construction of the building that became the kingdom in the 1968 fourth rust ballot initiatives. But uh, it was really the Sonics that showed the city while the Mariners and the Seahawks were uncompetitive for most years throughout the 1970s. It was the Sonics that were showing uh, the city um, in that generation what it looked like to capitalize on a team's playoff run with, uh, you know, the parking fees, the bar and restaurant taxes, uh, to say nothing of the publicity that, you know, an NBA championship would bring uh, the city. So at the same time that I think Seattle has, you know, kind of that that urge for recognition, um, it also has to sort of grapple with the fact that that urge for recognition has sort of led it to ignore some diamonds in its own backyard as the Sonics were for many years until they showed the city what it looked like to galvanize that kind of excitement. I love how you point out what it meant for the city outside of just sports for the Sonics to make that run. And I think that's a perfect bridge back to politics. Yes, sports can be used for, for civic pride. And yes, going on these runs will be an economic boost for, for a lot of ancillary businesses. 
But we could also argue that sports can be a tool for alienation. And that goes back to um, the 1920s, right, where the city gets more golf courses and it starts to feel more exclusive and, and heavily segregated because of that. Or even recently in 2023, when the MLB All-Star Game came here and then the city did all those homeless encampment sweeps in Soto to make way for this. Would you say that sports in this city has been used as a weapon or a barrier, or do you really believe that they have helped push progressive politics, or is it a little of both? I think it's definitely both, and that, you know, how you do anything is sort of how you do everything, and so sports are another way of sort of laying bare how power works in our city um, and showing us who holds it, who's trying to get more of it. For many years in the city of Seattle, or for at least uh, one year in the city of Seattle, I should say, in 1918, there was a KKK baseball team that played its games in broad daylight in the city of Seattle. At the same time, you had black Seattle baseball teams a few years later in the 1920s playing against uh, the Seattle Police Department. I tell that story in the book, playing games against prison guards at uh, Monroe Reformatory. This is happening at an era where the city is becoming uh, literally more segregated through the implementation of a zoning code that takes effect in 1924. So, you know, throughout the city's history, I think you see sort of uh, the athletics is really a contest between groups that have more power, those that have less. Um, and that's something that I try to spin out in the course of the book as well. When we build stadiums, the public has say in that. It, it usually comes with the vote. It usually comes with funding that is going to be on the hands of the public. Is there something to say about our willingness? I mean, maybe, you know, we know what happened with the Sonics and OKC, but still we have plenty of stadiums here. We have a willingness to do that. But when we see things like the unhoused folks and it doesn't feel like we have the same willingness to galvanize and come together and make sure that we're building spaces and facilities and places or even youth that need more programming after school. Like, why is it that sports is able to, to bring people together, to, to push these big capital economic projects. But when it comes to just helping people in communities, it feels more reluctant. Yeah, this is, you know, this is something I've talked about with a good friend and, and mentor of mine is, is Representative Frank Chop and, and understanding that he played a significant role in saying, look, 2006, the 2006, 2007, you know, big leagues are getting ready to all across the country and cities across the country are shaking down major cities and saying, you know, give us public funds for these big stadiums or else. Um, and understanding from his time in the legislature that enough was enough. And I don't think that Seattle gets in some ways enough credit as as deep of a heartbreak as the departure of the Sonics was. And as many layers of things that had to go wrong for something like that to happen. I don't believe that the city of Seattle in retrospect kind of gets enough credit for being one of the few cities that actually pushed back and said, we just doled out um, all of these public funds for a new stadium for uh, first the Mariners in defiance, actually, of King County voters who said we don't want this new stadium in 1995. Uh, more funds doled out for um, or more public resources devoted to the construction of a new stadium for the Seahawks and eventually for the Sounders. And at that point in time, there were economic uh, horizon in the mid 2000s. There being a recession towards the end of that decade was looking pretty grim. So. Elected officials at that point in time stood up and they said, this is not something that we can really do in good conscience. Um, for the ones who did say that, I think that history ought to judge them pretty favorably. And on the other hand of it, I think those, you know, the loss of the Sonics was felt with real loss on the part of uh, black Seattleites who at that point in time were enduring waves of gentrification 
And everywhere you looked, the city of Seattle seemed less black in many ways. And so, you know, I think that the departure of the Sonics was in a lot of ways a figurehead for displacement. And it was felt with an appropriate uh, sense of loss by many people in the city of Seattle and the central area and black Seattle in specific. So that's definitely part of the legacy of, of that team. And hopefully those conversations will get reignited and that connection will get reestablished when, you know, the team returns in another couple of years, as it seems like they might. Yes, absolutely. Fingers crossed. We are definitely hoping for that. That's right. Now, we we know the Sonics. We know the Mariners. There's a lot of teams that we know and are familiar with. But there are so many athletes and teams in this book that I've never heard of. Also, on a side note, I did the great white hype was, I did not, like, I know the story, but I did not know that that had a Seattle connection. I'll let the I'll let the people read that for themselves. But when we think of Bertha Knight Landis, the first female mayor of any major city, who was also a diehard baseball fan and an umpire, um, you talked about the Seattle Owls, a championship winning black women softball team in the 1930s or even names that we we see around the city right like uh, helene madison has a pool in the north end i've seen that a hundred times but i I was not familiar with her actual story and there's so many examples of that but were there any teams or athletes that that surprised you or were especially illuminating for you doing the research for this book yeah well finding out you know i'm a huge boxing fan and and just love the sport, love uh, practicing it, love watching it, reading about it, and understanding that the roots of the uh, Rocky story in many ways took place here in the city of Seattle with the with a uh, unknown white challenger named Pete Rademacher uh, being the first amateur to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world in his debut fight against Floyd Patterson in 1957. I'm going to let, uh, yeah, readers... Um, sort of, you know, check out the book to see how that story ends and how Rademacher's uh, title aspirations uh, go for him. But um, there were so many, so many teams and so many athletes. And I think that these are kind of the characters that make a good story, a great story. And, you know, running into somebody like Helene Madison, who, again, like, as you mentioned, you see the name everywhere, but you don't realize that she's actually Seattle's first individual sports, homegrown sports superstar. Um, the Seattle Owls, when I found out about them, actually towards the end of researching the book, I was searching for photos that could be um, evocative. And, you know, there are some three dozen photos that, you know, sort of in the book sporadically that sort of illustrate some of the things I'm attempting to talk about. But I, I discovered them, you know, kind of at the 11th hour. And I realized not only do I want to make sure to add some sections about what that team represented for black Seattle in the 1930s in the middle of a Great Depression, they're, de- they're competing against and defeating um, other white baseball white baseball teams and really a symbol of pride for Black Seattle. But I wanted them represented on the cover of the book as well because when you see photographs of the team, you see empowered Black women wearing hoop earrings, athletic apparel, and fly sneakers. And it's like you're almost you're looking at the past, but you're also looking into the future in a lot of ways as well. So there's a timelessness too. Um, I think I think sports is a symbol of of resilience for. Um, beleaguered communities in the city that I wanted to make sure was highlighted on the face of the book right there on the cover you see the Seattle Owls um, ready to compete and really being a symbol for the city that they're they're from. It feels like sports are going through an inflection point right now that seems to come every five years or so Um, we're seeing renewed attention to sports figures as cultural and political figures and we're seeing emphasis on mental health and acknowledging vulnerability within our athletes and it it seems like we might be moving past the shut up and dribble part of the national discourse the subtitle 
of your book is Seattle sports and the unmet promise of urban progress. What would it take for Seattle sports to actually meet that promise? Well, I look at I look at an athlete like Tyler Lockett, um, the wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, and I was watching a game earlier on in the season, and there was a spot that he had done about mental health issues, and he's been very uh, frank and forthright about his own his own sort of grappling with depression, with feelings that a lot of people, I think, would find very relatable. I remember as a kid coming up when the Sonics guard Kendall Gill in the 1995 season came forward and said that he was struggling with depression. He was mocked. Seattle radio personalities tore him limb from limb uh, saying, well, if he was averaging 20 and giving you seven assists a game, would we be talking about depression? And so it kind of struck me in that moment watching Tyler Lockett and and kind of having that memory activated from uh, 20 or 30 years earlier, just how far the discourse has kind of come around not just athletics, but labor generally. And the shut up and dribble uh, kind of mindset, you're referring to um, sort of the way that I think LeBron James had been criticized at one point in time as somebody who was a little bit too outspoken on some social issues. There's an, there's an obvious racial component that goes back to some of the most insidious aspects of our history. And I think that the labor uh, issue or the labor aspect of that conversation needs to be at the center of this as well. Right now, we're seeing a wave of unionization in fields that people thought were previously immune to worker activity, campaign workers, baristas, as well as traditional labor and strike activity among teachers and nurses. Um, and so I think that one of the ways that we're going to get to being a city that meets that promise of urban progress is is improving just sort of ideas that we have about what it means to be a working or everyday person as well. Um, I tell the story about the Seahawks' 1987 NFL strike in the book, which might be my favorite single uh, episode and storyline in the entire book. Um, and just drawing so much inspiration from that and knowing that organized labor was galvanized by this team that was going on strike for better worker protections and greater worker freedoms. So I think it has to do with uh, being a city that actually waters itself at the grassroots. And you can't get any more grassroots than working people, supporting working people, having policies that make it easier to be somebody who lives and works and thrives in the city of Seattle. Sean Scott is the author of Heartbreak City, Seattle Sports, and the Unmet Promise of Urban Progress. Sean, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic grassroots activism and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom listen to let the kids dance from KUOW and the NPR network